This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, October the 20th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Hello, horns, my old friend. It's nice to speak with you again. Coming up on the show today, Apple has unveiled a new slate of iPads. Sean Priest will walk through some of the features with us. Para-athlete Kevin Frost is launching his autobiography. He'll tell you all about his book, Deafblind Champion. And cryptocurrency has been a rising and falling roller coaster over the last few years. Don Dickinson will feature a really interesting piece about that from McLean's magazine. But let's begin the show with our top story. Ontario Provincial Police Superintendent Pat Morris says that the force was prepared for a long protest. We're even beginning to schedule and plan at that time for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month. The story from Ottawa City Council is a little bit different. Ottawa City Councillor and former chair of the police board, Diane Deans, reflected on how the protests threw the city's police leadership and city hall into chaos. And then there was what I would describe as some sort of insurrection from within that was happening. Deans testified that Ottawa's police chief, Peter Slowly, was not prepared for a long protest. He said to me, what are you so worried about? And I I, I told him just what I told you, the, the number of tracks, the size of those tracks, the amount of money that they have. And, and he, he said that he would be surprised if they were still here on Monday. While we're in the halls of Parliament, let's shift over to some straight-up politics. After a bill doubling, the GST rebate became law with Conservative support. The Liberal government is pushing the Tories to back more cost-of-living supports. The Liberals are trying to expedite the passage of a bill that would provide a new dental care benefit for children under 12 in low-income households and a one-time $500 payment to low-income renters. But Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev says the other subsidies will do little for most Canadians. Unfortunately, uh, the Prime Minister is proposing to do exactly nothing for the vast majority of struggling families who will get nothing. And even those small minority who do will find it gobbled up by increased inflation. You heard the Conservative leader mention inflation in that clip. We did report the latest stats, Ken data on inflation yesterday, showing that it is going down month over month by 0.1%. However, the annualized rate is still quite high at 6.9%. University of Calgary economics professor Travis Toome offers some insights on how energy prices have been the key driver of price spikes and drops. Energy prices was the overwhelmingly dominant factor that led inflation to rise as high as it did. And so for it to lead the deceleration is not at all surprising, right? And it is tied to oil prices, which have come down from their highs earlier this year. Toom reflected on how price spikes disproportionately impact people with lower incomes. The big reason why lower income individuals are hit hardest from rising prices is because they consume a much larger share of income, right? They save less. 
one little piece of data as you crunch the numbers coming from StatsCan yesterday in relation to inflation, even though we're seeing the number coming down a little bit, and even though we're seeing energy prices come down as one of the key drivers, still looking at almost an 11% year-over-year increase in the cost of groceries. And we'll explore that a little bit with Joita Gupta as part of the news panel tomorrow. So stay tuned for that one. About 9.15 a.m. Eastern time, we'll kick off the panel. Let's head overseas, as I like to do. And giving you an update on what's going on in the halls of Parliament in England. The political trouble continues for British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Charles De- Charles de Ledesma has the latest. British Prime Minister Liz Truss is hanging on to power by a thread after a senior minister quit with a barrage of criticism and a key policy vote descended into chaos and acrimony. A botched economic plan unveiled by the government last month triggered financial turmoil and a political crisis that's seen the replacement of Truss's Treasury chief. Multiple policy U-turns and breakdowns of discipline. Many Conservatives say Truss must now resign, but she's remained defiant, saying she's a fighter and not a quitter, while one Conservative, Simon Hoare, says the government is simply in disarray. Charles Diladesma, London. And let's get to one more story here in relation to climate. The International Energy Agency is out with some fresh data on carbon emissions. Ben Thomas takes a closer look. The International Energy Agency expects carbon emissions from the burning of fossil fuels will rise again this year, but by much less than in 2021. That thanks to the growth in renewable energy technology and electric vehicles. Last year saw a strong rebound in emissions after the global economic downturn caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Overall, emissions cuts are well behind the pace needed to meet the goal of the 2015 Paris Climate Accord to keep global temperatures from rising beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. They've already risen 1.2 degrees. I'm Ben Thomas. So just a few moments ago, we played you a story about British Prime Minister Liz Truss, and I told you Charles de Ledesma was going to tell you the latest. Well, now I can tell you the latest relayed to me from Alex Smythe, who's watching the Newswire. British Prime Minister Liz Truss just resigned. So that head of lettuce lasted longer than Liz Truss. So we can now officially end that video stream. Alex, thank you for sharing that information with us as it came across the wire. We appreciate it. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday, we asked you, I wanted you to point the pointy, stinky stick at someone. Who is responsible for the high cost of housing across Canada? 11% of you said the government. 0% of you said the central bank. 56% of you said corporations. And 33% of you said no one. Today's Daily Poll. We'll be talking to Sylvie Fiquette as we're wrapping up the show in about uh, an hour and 45 minutes from now. We'll be talking about disc golf or frisbee golf, if you will. And it got me thinking, do you participate in organized sports? Play on a team, go to tournaments, yes or no? Of course, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook... And while you're contemplating your vote, let's bring in Alex and Eliza for their thoughts on this one. First of all, Alex, thank you for sharing that news about Liz Truss with me. Not a problem. You know, it's always good to be current and relevant. I just uh, saw it as uh, the, the scripts came out. I was like, oh, well, maybe I should uh, look at the updates. Then. And yeah, she, in fact, just resigned wow. moments ago. So breaking news here on Now with Dave Brown. There that's we, why people tune in, right? That's why we do the show live, my yeah. friend. That's why we do the show live. Alex. Do you participate in any kind of organized sports? 
Uh, not right now, no. And this was something I've I've always kind of wanted to to do for a while, but I I never quite found anything that a would fit my schedule in a way that was convenient for me that would be nearby or or local for for me to try. And then on top of it, you know, living with vision and hearing loss makes sports very challenging and difficult. And so I'm actually interested to uh, hear your conversation with Kevin Frost in, in a little bit as a deafblind athlete himself. It's the challenge of finding a sport that, you know, allows you to be competitive, to enjoy what you want to play whilst living with hearing and vision loss. Because for me, I find it's like, well, especially any para sport, it's like goalball, for instance. Yeah, you, you know, it's for people who are visually impaired or, or blind. But it relies on hearing. Well, mm. it doesn't really work well if you have uh, hearing loss as well. And then, you know, any any sport that really is for someone who's hard of hearing or, or deaf typically relies on vision. So it's it's trying to find that balance in between of something that, that can be, you know, good for both senses, like blind hockey. I would love to try it. But, I mean, you have to listen to a rattling puck. I don't know if I take my hearing aids out. Otherwise, I'm going to sweat them out. I won't be able to hear much on the ice, which I become a bit of a liability. So uh, that's my biggest challenge is something finding something that's going to work well for me. Mm -hmm. I always love sports. I always love being active. It's just trying to find something close and local that I can play and participate in. Yeah, I think you identified all the factors that stopped me there too. Certainly some accessibility factors in regards to finding a sport that works considering my uh, disability, but also, yeah, can I get to this easily within my schedule? I tried to play Ultimate Frisbee a couple of years ago. Well, it's a decade ago now because time <laughs> is a flat circle. And I really didn't like it because of the fact that I was going all over Ottawa and trying to take the bus yeah. at like 11 at night to go play an ultimate frisbee game i was like yeah you know hard pass on that that's that's inconvenient yeah. so i find it difficult i like to play sports on my own time so that's where that's why stuff like golf really works for me sneak out on a monday afternoon or early on a monday morning and uh, get nine holes in but that's not really organized sports that's just playing a game to uh, keep myself oh. a little bit busy I, I mean, you're you're uh, it, you're going to a location that is organized and prepared for you. I, I would still classify that. I mean, you could go and you could have a league or something like that. Golf, I I played literally once on on a green. I enjoyed it, but the the problem is I don't know where my ball's going. Yeah, I'm gonna hit yeah, it yeah. off the tee. Someone else is gonna have to find it for me and then oh, let me know where it is. I that's the hardest part about playing golf with me beyond tolerating my bad uh, golf is that I do need a spotter, a perpetual spotter to uh, tell yeah. me where the shot where the shot goes. What about a bowling league, Alex? Should we start a bowling team? I mean, we certainly could. Bowling is one of those ones. It's pretty pretty straightforward, pretty easy to to play, especially you know if you have. Uh, vision loss there are guides and and, and uh, kind of different uh tools that you can use to to make bowling more accessible so yeah that's certainly and, right. and not too difficult one that you can do and typically bowling alleys are close by any sport you can do with a drink in your hand is my kind of sport uh, eliza exactly. rocco what about you what do you, do you participate in any kind of organized sports maybe a softball team Actually, um, currently not right now, but uh, pre-pandemic, uh, I was on, I partook in a yearly tournament, a yearly softball tournament. Hey. Um, super, super fun. It was, it takes place in my old hometown, which is in the middle of nowhere. So there's a, <laughs> only a few teams. Um, I don't think we have won a game, period. <laughs> no games won. A couple bases we, we got, but that's about it. Uh, <laughs> My problem currently with sports, and I really want to get back into it. Maybe softball, maybe bowling. I'm down. Oh, come on. The AMI bowling team. We got something going here. Yeah. But my biggest issue is that I love sports, and 
I get really into them, and I get I'm a very competitive person. Oh, I see. But I suck. I oh, suck no. so bad, oh, no. so bad at almost every single sport. It's very sad. <laughs> That's a bad combination: ultra competitive, but also not good. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, not a recipe for uh, a good teammate. I try. I try really hard, and uh, my teammates appreciate that. But I, I'm certainly not the. Uh, First picked. Okay, I get, it doesn't matter. Our bar bowling team is not about that. We're the fun team. We're I'm, the fun I'm a bowling team. Bowler. Yeah, I there can you hold go. My own in bowling, but uh, hockey, soccer, you don't want me on your team. Back in my unemployed degenerate days in the uh, late two thousands, my friend and I used to go to a bowling alley every Tuesday afternoon because you could play three three uh, games for like ten dollars. So we used to hang out with all the senior citizens as just a couple young guys were in torn jeans. And, uh, yeah, just bumming around NDG, the Rose Bowl. Good times. Happy times in my life. Much simpler, much simpler being broke and a degenerate <laughs> and just going right? bowling on a Tuesday afternoon. But, uh, you know, we grow up and we get responsibilities. Eliza, thank you for this. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Feel free to uh, jump into the comments on this one as well and shout out maybe a local team or a local sports organization that you want to give a little bit of love to. And we can read those comments on the air tomorrow. And uh, feel free to jump into the uh, feedback line via email, feedback at ami.ca or uh, give us a phone. Call 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. He has the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Be warned, it's not a very pretty day out across the country. A lot of chances of rain. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, Possible rain in the morning, and then it's raining in the afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 17. Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this morning and a high of 15. Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy and you guessed it, possible showers and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is 10. Ottawa, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy and possible showers as well with wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and a high of eight. In Toronto, Ontario, mainly cloudy with possible flurries early morning and then showers later, and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of eight. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, its clouds are clearing out this morning for some sunshine and a high of 10. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 15. To Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with possible showers and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and the high is 15. Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds and possible rain in the afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with 17 as the high. Up to Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy and possible showers this morning and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour as well with 14 as the high. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's mainly cloudy and possible showers. Four is the high. Vancouver, BC, they're still dealing with widespread smoke in the area and an air quality statement is in effect due to that smoke. 15 is the high there. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds along with being hazy and there is the air quality uh, statement in effect there as well. The 16 is the high. 
That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, para-athlete Kevin Frost is launching his autobiography. He'll tell you all about his book, Deafblind Champion. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are lots of things that you can undertake that count as accomplishments. Competing in sports at an elite level certainly would be one. The dedication that it takes to work and work and work and compete at the highest level is a huge accomplishment. One of the other things that I'll always have so much respect for is the act of writing a book. To take the time every day with that discipline to put pen to paper or fingertip to keyboard. Well, our next guest, Kevin Frost, is someone who can do both of those accomplishments, an elite para-athlete, and now the author of his autobiography, Deafblind Champion, that is recently launched. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for making time to be with us on the show today. We're grateful. Awesome. Good morning, Dave, and your audience. How are you doing? Doing well today, Kevin. Always nice to chat with you. Kevin, I want to start with the book, Deafblind Champion. Why was yeah. now the right time to write your autobiography? I think it was a great time because I've accomplished a lot in the last 25 years doing five different uh, elite, doing five different sports and rowing, speed skating, tandem racing, and and now I'm doing blind golf. So needless to say, I think it's about time to share how I became a champion and to motivate uh, blind and deaf and disabled able to able people to be active in today's world. Kevin, I've been following along with your career for some time now as an elite athlete. What was it like for you to reflect as you were putting fingertip to keyboard and pen to paper to think about these stories and think about these events that had a lot of meaning in your life? Well, it was with the help of Dino, he helped me work together for a year and we were able to just put all these things together and realizing putting it down in pen, clicking on the keyboard and putting it all together, I realized I've actually accomplished quite a bit. So it was kind of cool to go over my own history. But I think what's more important is how I can take the tools of what I went through. I had my hurdles, I had my lows, I had my highs. And I thought, why not share it in a book? And I thought it, that's why I wrote the book called Deafline Champion. And now we have a copy on uh, Amazon. And you can go to my website, www.deaflinespeedskater.com. And that's where you can get my book. How did you find the process of writing the book? Was it difficult? Actually, you know what? Yes, with my dual disability, it was challenging. But you know what? That's what made my disability has made me a stronger person. And I just put those tools that I shared in the book on how to get through that, how to process things. You know what? You just got to keep on going and just smile every day. I always say every day is a great day. Kevin, I want to circle back to your accomplishments as an athlete. What does sports mean to you? Because as you mentioned, you're still competing in blind golf today. You've competed in multiple sports. What does it mean to be active? What does it mean to be involved in sport to you? Well, well you know what? It, it, it's to me, it's, it's, I feel like sometimes I forget I have a disability. So when I'm competing, at times 
forget that I'm deafblind, but at the end of the day, I've chosen to better myself with only three senses. So needless to say, I've always tried to, I've always driven to succeed and driven to make a difference in the public, driven to make a difference and help other people, help people in the mission, help try to push government uh, policies to, to make it better for everybody else. It's about finding ways to make better living for everybody. Kevin, in the first segment of the show, we were talking about participation in organized sports and our colleague Alex Smythe was talking about having a dual disability also with uh, with some vision loss and some hearing loss. Was it difficult to find a sport that really clicked for you, that really worked for you as you were going through your own disability, your own dual disability? You know what? Great question. Um when I did lose my vision and my hearing on a spot, lost my job, lost my license, lost my job, and with the help of CNIB and my service guide dog, I was able to just to pick up little pieces. And I realized sports was my therapy. Sports, I, I did realize I wanted to accomplish that much more. So getting involved in those five different sports at, a, at an elite level, it's kind of cool. Like it, it motivated me. It drove me to do more, drove me to, to, to do well in every sport. And next year I'll be going to... South Africa to represent Canada in blind golf. So it just shows you it always takes five to six years to master your sport. So I never give up. Kevin, we know we're uh, getting close to the end of the golf season. Certainly for you guys out there in Eastern <laughs> Ontario, it gets pretty warm. How is uh, it gets pretty cold this time of year? How is the season? How how did the blind golf season go for you this year? Actually, actually quite well. I started off in USA and in Florida at St. Augustine, came fourth in the world there. Then I came back to uh, to Ohio to the Vision Cup, and we did well. We lost eight seven to the uh, the American, but with a great great event. I went to Calgary. I kind of fell apart. I actually got COVID in Calgary, and but I dropped to fifth place. And then I came back to provincials in Canadian and won Stableford overall champion. So it was kind of a golf was always unpredictable. So. That's like in every sport. So you're going to have some good games and some bad games, and you just learn from your bad game and get better and better as you go along. So South Africa, hopefully we can make some ground in, uh, at Worlds. Kevin, when I met you, you were in the midst of your speed skating push, and it blew me away <laughs> the discipline you needed physically to do that job because it's such a will sport. It takes so much will to keep with it. Golf is very different. I'm curious how you approach your training at elite level golf versus the way you did it in speed skating. So very well said. Every sport is all about technique. It doesn't matter what sport you do. So it's really oddly, every time I have a bad game in golf, I go back to basics. And when you go back to basics, you just got to go back to the fundamentals of golf when I, same thing in speed skating, same thing in tandem cycling, same thing in track. You got to go back to basic. But what I realize is the harder you try in your sport, you actually fall apart. The more relaxed you are, you actually produce, you, you, you perform better in all the sports. So I realize in golf, if you hit the ball 80%, you have a better game. When you, when you hit the ball 90%, you fall apart. That's the same thing in speed skating, tandem cycling. When you're climbing up a hill, the harder you pedal, you actually lose sync when you're trying to synchronize with a tandem bike. So in track running, you got to run with your guide. So it's all about practicing and training and doing things repetitive and learning from your mistakes and making you a better athlete. Kevin, let's come back to the book, Deafblind Champion. Where should people go to pick up a copy? So great. So it's on Amazon. Amazon, you just 
you just click DeafBlind Champion on the Amazon site, or you can go to www.deafblindspeedskater.com, and once you open that, it'll uh, it'll open up. And what's more exciting is I'm trying to get many people as I can to buy the book because my next goal is to do an audio book for my book so the total blind can actually listen to my book. So that's what I'm trying to do with my proceeds. So I think I'm hoping the audience will reach out, share my story, and let's get more people to read this book and help everybody mentally be happy all the time and how to be a champion. Kevin, congratulations on your continued success on the fields of play. Congratulations on finishing the book. That's no small accomplishment. Keep in touch, and let's uh, catch up with you ahead of the, uh, the visit to South Africa. Awesome. Guys, have a great day. Keep smiling every day. <laughs> we try our best. That's Kevin Frost, okay. the author of Deaf Blind Champion. As he mentioned, you can find that book on Amazon. Just uh, punch that one in into the search bar on Amazon and track that down. As Kevin mentioned, the proceeds are going towards a very good cause to get that book into uh, audiobook format as well. Coming up next, you know that cryptocurrency has been going through some rises and some falls. Well, Don Dickinson has a really interesting story from McLean's Magazine that takes a bit of a personal perspective into cryptocurrency and uh, the rise and the fall through a very personal perspective. So Don Dickinson will be here with a preview of McLean's Magazine. But before we get to that, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index ended lower yesterday on domestic inflation data that was higher than investors had hoped. Toronto's TSX index fell 123 points to 18,674. New York's Dow Jones average lost 99 points and the Nasdaq gave back 91. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index fell 250 points and our dollar is trading this morning at 72.71 cents U.S. Canadians continue to feel the pinch at the grocery store with food prices soaring at the fastest rate in four decades. One economist says there likely won't be any meaningful relief either until early next year. StatsCan's latest consumer price index report showed the annual overall inflation rate was at 6.9% in September, but food prices were up a staggering 11.4% year over year. And Tesla has reported that its third quarter profit more than doubled from a year ago, $3.3 billion from July through September. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just because we don't broadcast on AMI-audio anymore doesn't mean we don't have love for the work that our colleagues do over there. Just some incredible reading shows going on right now, including McLean's Magazine, which you can find weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. One of the reasons why the show is so good is because it's produced by Don Dickinson, who joins us with a look at a couple of this week's articles. Hey, good morning, Don. Hey, Dave. I'm taken aback by that compliment. <laughs> I, I get my audio pumped, piped into my office every day as I'm working on the show in the afternoon. So there's some great work that you guys are doing there. My only regret is that I host the show live when McLean's Magazine is happening. So I, have, so I have to catch it on the repeat, but that's okay. Andy Frank made a nice wheel of broadcasting there. So I'm able to pick it up later in the day. 
Right. Good. Don, you have a couple great articles this week. The first one really takes a look at the rise and fall of cryptocurrency, but through a pretty unique lens. The, the article is called The Many Trials of Canada's Crypto King by Ethan Liu. This is just an incredible in-depth article, but give me a brief overview. Well, um, basically, this gentleman uh, who uh, was born in, in China but uh, is uh, uh, Canadian has built this empire, uh, this absolute empire in uh, in uh, cryptocurrency. And there's been a lot of um, things that have happened to him. He's had many trials and tribulations. Um, as we all know, the Bitcoin had no specific laws in place when it was originally uh, brought into being. And authorities weren't particularly sure whether um, or whether they should regulate it or how they should regulate it or what particular restrictions they should put on it. Nobody said they couldn't build a platform around magic internet money, which is how it's <laughs> referred to in the industry. So this fellow basically took that as a go-ahead to build an empire in crypto. And he's had uh, various uh, various problems. <laughs> so so we're talking about his value earlier this year before the crypto crash being at about $125 billion. That's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money with uh, built on algorithms. Um, you've, you've said that sometimes people characterize it as funny money or magic internet money. There are plenty of people who are also major proponents of cryptocurrency. I, I fall somewhere in the middle. But, but why Talk me a bit further in regards to these regulations. What were the regulations that were governing it? Well, as I say, there weren't many, to be honest, Dave. I I'm surprised to hear that from you, Dave. But anyhow, we can go into that yeah, a we little can, bit for sure, later. For sure, for sure. I'd be um, happy to. You know, uh, there weren't many at all in the beginning. And when he started, he was in the very early stages. And his, uh, quote, worldview was that uh, anything uh, goes, and if there's no law against it, then it's legal which is quite a way <laughs> to look at things. Interesting perspective, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, he started out, as I say, in China, and then the country cracked down hard on uh, crypto, and he shut down his uh, Chinese exchanges and uh, started dealing um, uh, in Hong Kong. And then Hong Kong decided that, no, they weren't too keen on that either. And then he next moved to Japan. And so the difficulty is that this is a moving target, right? Mm -hmm, and, it's, mm -hmm. it, and, and it's an industry that's in, 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 in flux. I, I would like to say on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's more like on an hourly yes, basis yes. it's in flux. P people so, can trade yeah. the currency 24 hours a day, which 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 is uh, which means that it's perpetually wavering, extremely volatile. Don, you you mentioned some geography there, bouncing around a little bit to different places. Well, now Uncle Sam is involved, the Department of uh, Justice yes. in the U.S. and the IRS. What's going on with that? Okay, so in May of last year, Bloomberg reported that the U.S. Department of Justice and the IRS have launched probes into whether Binance, which is the company that he is um, uh, uh, he owns and uh, started, has acted as a conduit for tax evasion and money laundering. Uh, that is, this is of course speculation um, that he has been avoiding the U uh, 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 taxes in the U.S. and he is saying. 
in response to this, that that's just a bunch of hooey and that, you know, Google and Facebook are still working out uh, um, what they're allowed to do with regulators and with data and with privacy mm -hmm. issues and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And he said, this is all just very, very normal uh, when you're dealing with mega, mega bucks and that he's going to be sitting down with, uh, <laughs> this is going to be interesting, he's going to be sitting down with these regulators and thrashing out basically what he can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, the problem, right? I mean, there's nothing really on the books it, as what they can and cannot do. It, 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 it didn't emerge rapidly, but it did grow quickly. People have been talking about cryptocurrency since certainly the late 2000s, the early 2010s. And it's only really in the last four to five years that it became more of what I'd call a mainstream concept. But yeah. certainly the regulators were way behind on this, as typically regulators are. <laughs> and they were not yeah. ready for the amount of money that was going to be created here. Don, one more question about Zhao, the, the subject of this article, uh, before, before maybe I can, I can illuminate you a little bit bit on where I stand on the cryptocurrency conversation, because I do believe it's complicated. Again, coming back to that nomadic sort of jumping around different jurisdictions, how much is that playing into the financial issues and legal issues that he's facing now? Well, I think it's very much playing into it. He's not particularly uh, a materialistic sort of, sort of guy. He doesn't have houses. He doesn't have many uh, possessions, believe it or not. He doesn't have, you know, like boats and yachts and all the things that good old uh, Elon and all the other big, big time people <laughs> the have. The $125 right? billion dollar heirs, yeah, that they typically would yeah. have, the super yachts. You know, and uh, and tying in with that, he doesn't have uh, residences per se, nor does he really stick around, as I, as I uh, you know, expressed before about you know, when he has a problem with a country, he just closes up shop and moves on. So a lot of that doesn't build trust. And of course, uh, uh, you know, when you're dealing with financial matters, trust is a big deal. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. when, when TD first launched in, in the States and we were going down to West Palm Beach to visit friends fairly regularly in the wintertime. And we were just elated. <laughs> <laughs> because we saw we saw the green and white of Toronto Dominion uh, down in West Palm Beach. And I know it's kind of silly, but it's almost it's an emotional thing, right? Because you you get to see those institutions, you know those institutions, and they spend a lot of money in trying to build trust. And trust is having to seeing their signage, seeing where they are, and being able to you know physically walk into a building and deal with with somebody about yeah, your money. Absolutely, absolutely. That that that's it's it's a brand that you recognize, and you feel like if you're sliding your ATM card in there, it's okay. TD, I know TD, and TD knows me. So Don, yeah. let, let me elaborate a little bit on what I mentioned about cryptocurrency is someone who maybe falls in the middle because there's some folks who just completely dismiss it out of hand. They say, no, it's funny money. It's magic money. It doesn't count. There's nothing behind it. It doesn't exist. And then there are folks who I would say are probably a little bit evangelical about it and say, this is the future. It's a revolution. You can't stop the revolution. And I would argue that both those perspectives are, are probably wrong. As in life, most things are found somewhere in the middle. I think what happened here, Don, is people started looking at cryptocurrency as an investment opportunity rather than a currency. 
And the problem is when you start getting involved in currency speculation, it typically is extremely volatile. Whether you're buying the U.S. dollar or the Thai bots, anybody who bought the Thai bat in the late in the late 1990s knows all about that crash that occurred in Southeast Asia. So the fact is currency trading is always going to be something that's extremely volatile. But as something that can be used transactionally in the digital space, cryptocurrency still offers some value. But again, you have to be thinking about things like Bitcoin or Ethereum or what I would call the Cokes and the Pepsis of cryptocurrency. Because what happened is there was this mad dash where every jabroni in the world ran out and said, oh, well, I've got a cryptocurrency and I've got a cryptocurrency and I've got a cryptocurrency. And they don't carry that same sort of backing or brand or scarcity that typically you would find in those major brands of cryptocurrency. So I think what happened is there are the people who are trying to be evangelical about it and they're they're super annoying. And then there's the people who want to dismiss it completely and maybe lose focus of the idea of the possibility of money moving swiftly and easily between people. The problem being that your haircut that cost you, you know, a tenth of a Bitcoin on Sunday then cost you a half of a Bitcoin on Thursday and then cost you one one hundredth of a Bitcoin the next week. There's just too much instability as any kind of structural currency. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, I know nothing about this, Dave. I'll, be, I'll, I'll cop to that. But that's the thing that worried me. I mean, if you don't really know what it's worth, I know, and, and I know money fluctuates. I know, you know, the pound and the sterling and the euros and all, <laughs> and all that and everything fluctuates. But at least you know that that 15, 20, $25 haircut today is going to be a $25 haircut tomorrow in dollars, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like how in the world do you deal with that with crypto? Yeah, it's it's, I mean, it's yeah. super complicated. And we're seeing the experiment they tried in El Salvador trying to bring it in as a, as, as a major form of currency. And I mean, they have a number of other issues in El Salvador going on as well. But that experiment seems to have seems to have failed because of the crash of the price of crypto. So it, it, it's it's an interesting story. I just think anybody who sort of takes a, 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 a strict absolutist position on crypto, they're maybe not willing to actually engage in the conversation because I will confess it, it is quite complicated. Mm. <laughs> Don, let's yeah. jump over to your second story here. I'm sorry. We, I, have to, I have to rush you through this one a little bit, yep, but yep, a, yep, few, a few times we've been talking to you about healthcare on the show um, and different perspectives on healthcare. Well, there's one that we that we got here in this McLean's magazine called Fund Physician Assistance. So it's a personal perspective by Catherine Smart. What is she advocating for exactly here? Well, basically, she's advocating for uh, PAs, uh, physicians' assistants, uh, because because in a universal healthcare system, general practitioners practitioners are often the only professionals whose services are fully covered, but they're not necessarily experts on everything. You know, patients still need dietitians, they need social workers, they need mental health care professionals, and they need regular check-ins sometimes just with a nurse, right? So all of this has to be uh, partly integrated into their care and physicians are just run off their feet, especially Mm -hmm, with, you know, mm -hmm. post COVID and everything. So she's just saying, and I mean, she's a physician herself. She's, you know, she's been a physician for 21 years. She's just saying, listen, it's about time, if not past time to bring in physicians assistance. Yeah. It it, it definitely makes some sense to say, how can we take some of the uh, well, we talked about bureaucracy a couple of weeks ago. How do we get the bureaucracy out and help doctors see people on the front lines? So, w- whose services are currently covered under the un- under the system, and and how many PAs do we currently have in Canada? Is, is this a new solution, or have PAs been a part of our system for a while? 
Well, they have existed in some form in the Canadian military since 1950, okay? But right now there are only, this this blew me away, right now there are only about 800 certified in all of Canada. That's that's not very many. Uh, I know, many of whom are (laughs) haphazardly employed across hospitals and smaller practices. And these numbers pale in comparison to rates in the U.S. and, of course, across Europe as well. So she's saying something has to be done. It's time. Yeah, streamlining streamlining the process makes a ton of sense to me. I believe it's New Brunswick is experimenting with a pilot project where they're trying to get people who have chronic conditions to be spending more time with what they would call sort of healthcare adjacent teams, like right to the physiotherapists or right to uh, the rehab centers, and then making sure that that means doctors and nurse practitioners can see more uh, individualized cases. I, I think that this is what we're talking about, Don. Right? We're talking about yeah. a rethink in the way that we deliver healthcare. Exactly. You want your doctor uh, to be uh, attuned to you, that you want the time with your doctor to be spent with you, Mm -hmm. communicating with you, not doing paperwork, not just filling in sheets and files and prescribing your medicine and all the rest of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so PAs can do all of the all of that uh, upfront work. They can even do the basic stuff before they even walk into the doctor's mm-hmm, office. Take mm-hmm. your blood pressure and 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 uh, you know uh, take your blood sugar and all that stuff that's really just administrative, Dave. Mm-hmm, you know? Absolutely. And then they could do the follow-up administrative work so that the doctor doesn't have to go home at night, uh, like this particular doctor, and do five hours of just paperwork. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Hey, Don, these articles were great, and we encourage folks to tune in and give it a listen for the more uh, for the more thorough uh, listen on this one. We always appreciate you stopping by, Don. Have a great day, great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. That is Don Dickinson, the producer of McLean's Magazine, which you can find weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, the Uber WAV, or WAV program, offers accessible rides to some wheelchair users. But how does it work, and can it be a job opportunity for people with disabilities? Aaron Broverman will offer up his insight on that topic. This is Now with Dave Brown on ami Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Transportation is such a critical piece of the conversation that we have about accessibility and inclusion. How often do you hear about a lack of quality public transit or paratransit, let alone the lack of accessible taxis on the road? In some jurisdictions, ride-hailing services like Uber have stepped in for some people with disabilities. In the greater Toronto area, they offer Uber WAV, Uber WAV. The WAV stands for Wheelchair Accessible Vehicles. Aaron Broverman took a closer look at the service and dug up some interesting information. Aaron is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. I always call it Uber Wave. That was always the way that I termed it. See, I think that sounds better. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Okay, let's go with that. We've made an executive decision here. Uber Wave. Boom. Done. Settled. So I gave a really brief description of what it is, but dive a bit deeper into the service and its purpose. Basically, it is a wheelchair-accessible Uber service, and uh, it's used in the U.S., and in Canada, it's available in the GTA. So if you have a a wheelchair, um, you can drive on like you would 
paratransit and uh, your driver will take you to your destination. Have you ever used the service? I have. When I when I lived in Toronto, I used to use the service all of the time. Uh, I thought it was more widespread across Canada, but uh, I kind of found out the hard way that it's only available in the GTA because when I traveled to Vaughan, I could get there with a wave, but I couldn't get back mm. uh, to Toronto uh, because there was no wave service in Vaughan. So uh, that uh, caused an issue and I had to call an accessible cab. So you have to be careful about the jurisdiction that it's available in. And this is what led you to ask some questions. You're a journalist and you wanted to dig a bit deeper into the service. So what were you looking for specifically when you reached out to Uber? Well, I've had conversations with uh, accessibility consultant Marco Pasqua and friend of the show, Ken Oscar. And we've always wondered if you were a person with a disability who had your own accessible vehicle that you drove, could you drive as an Uber Wave driver? So this was always a question, uh, but we could never really get an answer. So using my status as a journalist, I uh, went to go find out. And yes, the answer is yes, you can uh, be an Uber driver if you have an accessible vehicle, uh, as long as you pass uh, their training and uh, their required background checks and that sort of thing. But they don't keep track of who on their service is a driver with a disability, so it's hard to know, uh, you know, whether or not there are people with disabilities who actually drive for Uberwave. They did say that in jurisdictions where Uberwave is not available, uh, you might still get a driver with a disability who uses an accessible vehicle uh, as their own vehicle if you go for like another Uber service such as UberX or Uber Comfort just by chance. So that could also happen in other jurisdictions where Uber Wave is not available, you might luck out and get an accessible vehicle by virtue of who the driver is. I had a really interesting experience in Montreal with a driver who happened to be deaf. Um, and it, it right when you got right when you got the notification that you were going to be picked up, it said the driver, the car you're getting into, the the driver is de- deaf. Just be mindful of that if you're trying to make small talk or talking to them. So I did some really quick searching of American Sign Language just to say hello, how are you? Thank you. The sort of basics. And Aaron, what I totally forgot is that in French there's a totally different sign language. So here I am, American Sign Language, into the guy, and he's looking at me like I'm totally out of my mind. It was uh, it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. Aaron, wow. you. <laughs> You also you also uh, were asking them a little bit about the expansion of the service and perhaps why it was not more widely available. What was their response in regard to that? Basically, it has to do with supply. There aren't enough accessible vehicles uh, on the road in these cities that aren't taken up by paratransit or other cab companies uh, that can be used. For Uber Wave. So there's not enough accessible vehicles on the road. Uh, demand is obviously very high, but there just aren't enough uh, vehicles uh, to, to provide, which, which, is, which is concerning. I hope that changes. Do they offer any kind of incentives for someone with a wheelchair accessible vehicle to potentially join the fleet? 
So initially, I had thought that they pay uh, Uber drivers in order to uh, drive an Uber Wave, like that they would fund the car because some drivers had told me that before. But they don't do that. The Uber driver has to pay for their own accessible vehicle uh, through the lease agreement that they sign. But there are incentives, like if you drive, you know, so many hours in an Uber Wave vehicle. Uh, in that sort of thing, uh, and they will, you know, give you like bonuses and that sort of thing. Also, in jurisdictions where Uber Wave is not available, places like Ottawa and Vancouver, Uber pays a fee to uh, the city and the different municipalities that is supposed to go towards improving accessible transportation mm. in that city generally. Aaron, you did some really solid work here looking into facts, but if you'll indulge me, I'd love to get your speculation. Do you suspect the wave service may become more widely available across the country? I absolutely want it to, but this issue with supply is is very concerning. Uh, I think there's a lot of competition between like the taxi services and the paratransit and and Uber and all and these uh, ride sharing services and they've all sort of carved out their own territory and don't really want to share. There are drivers that you know drive for taxis and also drive for Uber and and vice versa. So I hope that it becomes a little bit more harmonious and it's not just like these accessible cards are ours, you know, find your own accessible mm, cars mm. sort of thing. I think there should also be some marketing oh, towards um, people with disabilities that have their own accessible uh, vehicles so that you can encourage them to drive, uh, drive for Uber more often. Yeah, get into the side hustle, make a little cash for sure. Uh, Aaron, I'm someone who has benefited greatly from ride hailing services. It's been a total game changer for me, not having to take public transit absolutely everywhere or wait for unspecified periods of time for taxis. But we also know there have been some serious issues with ride hailing services over the years, especially when it comes to things like service animals. It's a mixed bag for sure. But where do you see the ride hailing industry going uh, going and evolving over the next few years? Have, have we peaked or could it become even more prevalent in our lives? I think it's even more prevalent. Like if you just see cab companies using apps and basically copying the way services like Uber and Lyft uh, do their thing, it's showing that, you know, these ride hailing services are really taking a bite out of uh, their market share that they used to that they used to dominate, and the fact that in jurisdictions like Vancouver, uh, you know, Uber Wave didn't exist for a long time because the taxi lobby fought so hard to keep them away. It just goes to show like how popular uh, these services are, and I and I'm sure how much they they're going to expand in the future. Hey, Aaron, we're always grateful for your perspective. I know you're a very busy man. I imagine it's a busy time to be working for a financial magazine. So we're always grateful that you can take a little bit of time for us uh, every couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks. And sorry about the fire alarm in the background there for a second. That was crazy. Well, hopefully there's no fire. Hopefully not. Yeah, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we get a chance to talk to you again in a couple of weeks, Aaron. Uh, but don't worry, don't worry about a couple of sirens or some buzzing. We're we're, we're used to in these uh, pandemic times, dogs and cats and fire alarms and telephones. I think it's become common practice at this point. <laughs> Awesome. Crazy times, Dave. Thanks crazy, for talking to me. Crazy times indeed. That's Aaron Broverman. He's the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Let's wrap up the hour with one quick news story. 
Heading across the Pacific, where Australia is dealing with their second major privacy breach in a month. A cyber criminal has obtained information from the health insurance company Medibank. Records of diagnoses, procedures, and treatments have been stolen. Australia's cybersecurity minister, Claire O'Neill, says lots of personal data has been compromised. It includes names, it includes addresses, it includes phone numbers, it includes um, some other identifying data. Uh, but the thing that I am most concerned about is that it includes um, numbers that indicate procedures and diagnoses about the health of Australian citizens. This attack comes a month after a cyber attack stole the personal data of 9.8 million customers from telecom company Optus. It's interesting because there's a lot that we and you can do to protect your personal data. But to a certain degree, there's only so much you can do when it goes somewhere else. That's one of the whole conversations we're having around privacy and companies taking our data. It's not just that you're taking my data. I've come to accept the fact that you are taking my data and potentially trying to sell me shoes with it. And I can live with that. But the concern is what happens when the giant telecom company or the giant insurance company gets hacked and they're not protecting your data. You can have my data, but you sure as heck better be protecting that data. Coming up after the break, I'll have the regional news updates. Got a couple neat stories from across the country, some cool policies in Atlantic Canada to share with you, and Brock Richardson will be here for a sports chat. We're going to deep dive into the world of hockey, talk about a couple Canadian teams and the start of their seasons. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm your host, Dave Brown. You know, they named the show first, and then they hired me. It really limited the talent pool. It's Thursday, October the 20th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Apple has unveiled a new slate of iPads. Sean Priest will walk you through some features. And an organization is trying to make disc golf more accessible disc golf, frisbee golf, whatever you want to call it. Sylvie Fiquette will have that story. Speaking of Sylvie Fiquette and the Wild West Coast, let's get to the regional news updates. The British Columbia NDP has disqualified one of only two candidates running for leadership of the party, allowing former Attorney General David Eby to become the Premier in waiting. Terry Theodore has the story. The party issued a statement last night saying it would follow the recommendations of the NDP's chief electoral officer and remove Anjali Apajurai from the race. A report by the electoral officer says Apajurai engaged in serious improper conduct by working with third parties for membership drives. Apajurai had urged the executive not to use the nuclear option to force her out. Because EB is now the only approved candidate in the leadership race, the party says the chief electoral officer will consider moving up his election date from December. Terry Theodore, The Canadian Press. And we'll talk about that story a little bit on the news panel tomorrow as well, just after 9.15 a.m. Eastern time. Let's head into the prairies, where the Manitoba government is launching a review of its taxes with the aim to make the province more competitive. The progressive conservative government says a working group will examine all the province's taxes and report back before the spring budget. Premier Heather Stephenson says, excuse me, Premier Heather Stevenson has not ruled out a reduction in taxes. 
We're doing this to make Manitoba more competitive, to keep those businesses here in the province and to grow their businesses here. So we look at this as, as making a way to, to say that we're open to business uh, here in, in Manitoba. The Manitoba government also announced a new subsidy for small businesses affected by the recent increase in the provincial minimum wage. The province says it heard concerns from the business community about higher payroll costs. Economic Development Minister Cliff Cullen says small businesses will be able to apply for a subsidy of 50 cents an hour for every minimum wage worker. We've designed a program that we think will be uh, user-friendly, quick and effective, and uh, businesses will be able to uh, apply online to to get those uh, supports in place. Applications for the program are now open. Over to Ontario, where a private funeral will be held in Barrie, Ontario today for two police officers shot and killed in the line of duty last week. Karen Rebo has more. The joint funeral for South Simcoe Police Service Constables Morgan Russell and Devin Northrup will be attended by families of both officers. Also, there will be several dignitaries, members of the local police force, and hundreds of representatives from other police and emergency services from across North America. The live-streamed service is private, but the public is invited to observe the procession. As it travels through Barry Streets, it'll start after 9 a.m. from the first of two funeral homes and then on to the Sadlon on Arena for 11 a.m. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And let's finish in Atlantic Canada, where Newfoundland and Labrador's provincial police force is acknowledging systemic racism within its ranks. The Royal Newfoundland Constabulary said yesterday it also acknowledges the contribution of police to injustices faced by Indigenous and other racialized people. The force says it is prepared to work with St. John's-based Indigenous collective First Voice to implement the calls for justice laid out in the National Inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And then over to PEI. The PEI government is launching a new emergency payment program for workers feeling financial strain caused by the power outages. The new program is intended for those who work remotely for a business that is not located on Prince Edward Island and had an income loss of $500 or more after Hurricane Fiona knocked out the power grid. The emergency payment is also for workers who were unable to work because of caregiving responsibilities for children 12 years of age or under. That's your look at the regional news. Now let's turn our attention to the world of sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, as we said goodbye yesterday, I said, let's talk about hockey tomorrow, and there's plenty of hockey to talk about. Let's start all the way out on the West Coast with the Vancouver Canucks off to a shaky start this season. Yes, they are. And uh, Bruce Boudreaux called his team, quote, mentally weak after their uh, third game, and then they subsequently went on to play a fourth game and only getting one point in that game. After three games, they called a players-only meeting. Whenever you hear the word players-only meeting, you kind of go, "Eesh." <laughs> three games. That that's always a, a bad, you know, phrase if you're an athlete. But um, uh, I just think that you know things are a bit tough when your coach kind of calls you as a team mentally weak. That's kind of a little, little, little bit. I'm not going to say much. It's 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 his way of saying, you know. Let's change it up a little bit. Let's do a little bit different. And when watching them, they just look terrible, which Mm. is kind of what we sort of talked about. We didn't think they'd be there um, 
when the season was ended, but I did not expect them to get off to such a poor start. Having said that, in all of their games, they are they have held the lead, and mm-hmm. they are the only team in NHL history to lose their first four games while holding a lead in all four of those and then subsequently losing it. Mm-hmm. So it's tough times in uh, Vancouver. But that leads me to my question asking you, you often hear in sports, uh, you can't win a championship in the first month, but you can certainly play your way out of the conversation. What in your mind would be a record in, in sports in general where you say, well, you pretty much played your way out of, out of the conversation? You're looking for a magic number here, Brock. You're making me do math. It's very unfair of you to be making me do math, but I'll indulge you irrespective on this one. I would argue that I'm not too concerned about your record until about 15 games into the season. That isn't to say you can go 0-15 in the first 15 games, but I would argue, let's say, using Vancouver as an example, at 0-3-1, four games into the season, if we get to about the 10th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th game and they've only got, let's say, two or three wins, that's when I would start to say, Yep, it's early, but you are already cooked. What do you think, Brock? Where do you think that number is? It's fu- it's funny because we're in the same kind of neighborhood. I'm looking at the first 20 games, and if you only get uh, five wins out of that first 20, you're kind of starting to dig yourself a uh, deeper hole than you would need to. It's not like baseball where you play – 100 and you know 62 games a year you can dig your way out of it there's only 82 games in an nhl season in this case that's kind of the benchmark for me where i look and i say "Mm, this is probably a bit of too far for uh them to dig themselves out of but we'll see i just don't like what i'm hearing coming out of vancouver it's it's Um, two years in a row uh, they they started last year really poorly they started last year really poorly they fired their coach and it looked like bruce boudreau stabilized them and for them to come out this season and look flat again at a certain point you wonder oh gosh is that the coach or is there something in that locker room that just isn't clicking that isn't to put the total blame on the Elias Pettersons or the Quinn Hughes of the world because these are good hockey players but if those are your best two players and two years in a row they've come out flat man that that puts it that puts a team and an organization in a really tough spot yeah and the coach you know gets sort of the a bad rap in in a lot of situations when you look at this in two years in a row it's 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 been the same way at some point you know you got to look internally with the players and say is there something going on? And cultural in sports, in what you what you bring up is um, is good. What you who you bring in, the players you add, the chemistry. It's all relative and it's all important. And if you have a missing cog in the wheel in some way, shape, form, doesn't matter the talent. It's not going to go well um, in the end. So. Brock, there's an exciting ah. game on deck tonight. The Ottawa Senators playing host to the Washington Capitals. The Sens coming off just a barn burner of a game on Tuesday night, beating the Boston Bruins 7-5. to The season started a little slow for the Sens, perhaps a little disappointing with the 0-2 start, but now it looks like maybe the wheels are on a little bit. What's your reaction to the Ottawa Senators and where they're at? Uh, my reaction is, wow, uh, what a game against Boston. Uh, Boston is still 
a good team, uh, to go in there and just outscore them is something really, really, really good to see. I, I think um, Ottawa's game is going to be, look, we're going to have to outscore teams. In order to do this, we're going to have to outskate teams. We're going to have to outwork teams. And I feel like I'm about to get into the putting pucks in deep kind of narrative. <laughs> but but that but, but that is the truth. Washington is a, is a really good team as well. That's going to be a good test. I'm not sure you're going to be able to outscore Washington, you know, uh, 7-5 in a, in a game like that. But, man, am I ever fascinated just to see what happens with the Ottawa Senators. And they are one of those teams that I believe has chemistry that, you know, could bring them somewhere. And as I said, chemistry can go a long way beyond what the prognosticators really mm-hmm. think you're going to do in a season. So I'm loving watching Ottawa. I couldn't believe the... Uh, 7-5 victory uh, the other night against Boston. It was fun to watch. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Nice offensive performance from their top line of uh, Drake Batherson and Tim Stutzla, both putting up three points on uh, on Tuesday nights. And those are the players that they're hoping will come through. And even Alex Dabrinkat, only a couple points after the first three games. But heck, that's a 50 to 60 point pace. They probably want a little more from him with the, with the acquisition over the summer. But the fact is that the, the team appears to be trending at least somewhat in the right direction here after, after a fairly rocky start. Brock, a team that you had very high hopes for, I was maybe just a little bit colder on them, was the Calgary Flames, and they're off to a very, very good start considering the instability they went through in the offseason. They are. They are really off to a really good start. I mean, this was a team that everyone thought was going to be um, – you know, in a rebuild until they got all their acquisitions, which we've talked about, but just a complete good team. They're good defensively. They're good in goal. They're good offensively. Like they're just a well-rounded team. And for me, this is the team that I am going to be watching more often than not, because Mm -hmm. they're just such a great brand of hockey that they play right along with the Ottawa senators. To be honest with you, I like what I see from, both of these clubs, it's really, really fun to watch. And it's much better than watching my beloved Leafs. Right now, <laughs> uh, per- perhaps a, uh, perhaps a, the thing about the Flames that can get some nice appeal is guys like Elias Lindholm and Tyler Toffoli. These are maybe not household household names when it comes to the casual hockey fan, but these are really good hockey players. And that's the thing. When you get up and down the Calgary Flames roster, there might not be too, too many super duper stars, but there's just a lot of really good hockey players. And that's the product that's showing up on the ice right now. And those really good hockey players that you're discussing are the ones that are going to crash the net, get the dirty goals. They're not the fancy flashy team that says, well, I'm not, I'm a superstar. I'm not going to put myself in the net and get the dirty goals. Calgary is willing to do both. Calgary is willing to, 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 you know, push the puck, you know, on whatever goaltender they're playing and, you know, scratch and claw for those, those not as pretty and flashy goals. Brock, yesterday in the afternoon, I uh, was hanging out at the bar. It stretched into the evening. So in the afternoon, I watched a little bit of the Padres and Phillies game before they changed the channel to the Raptors game. Pretty interesting game out there in San Diego. The series now tied 1-1 in the National League Championship Series. Any uh, takeaways from the Phillies and Padres? Yeah, I think that this sun uh, certainly uh, played a factor for 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 the Padres in the beginning when they went down uh, – for nothing. But then when you think of the way that they came back, you know, back to back home runs 
they were getting base hits. They kind of did everything the right way. They, you know, Philadelphia was was nickel and diming them. You know, base hits falling here there. But then, but then the Padres just came and said, "No, no, we're the better team here, and we're gonna we're gonna show it." To me, I, I in the beginning of the game, I, Dave, I kind of was like, "Hmm, why is the sun playing such a factor?" For for San Diego yeah. when it is their home their home ballpark that this was kind of the thing that I was just like mm, why is this such a factor mm-hmm. for the home team let mm-hmm. al- let alone the road team that to me was the surprise it doesn't at all surprise me that this series is tied and man is it gonna get even even better when we go into Philadelphia for the three games because remember it's two three two mm-hmm. in the uh, in the next round here oh, so gosh just. Very fascinating series for sure. Yeah, that game, that game got going early. It was a 4 p.m. start on the East Coast, which means it was a 1 p.m. start on a Wednesday afternoon in San Diego, California. How do you think that conversation with the boss goes? Hey, uh, I got to get out of work early to go to a playoff game at 1 p.m. on a Wednesday. Yeah, sure you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Brock, I did not get a chance to watch any of the night game, but what's the big takeaway or, the, or your big thought from uh, the Houston Astros beating the Yankees 4-2? to Ah, uh, man, listen, it starts and stops with Justin Verlander, uh, 39 years old, likely to win the Cy Young Award, in my opinion. That guy, yeah, like, he's cold-blooded because he'll just, he'll just say, okay, you, you got a couple of hits on me, that's uh, fine, I'll strike two in a row out, no problem. <laughs> um, he's, he's now got um, 214 playoff strikeouts, which leads the league. Wow. This guy is a machine. He knows what's going on. Absolutely wonderful defense by both uh, Houston and New York. Wonderful catch by Aaron Judge last night using every inch of his body. But then we got some home runs by um, uh, Yuri Gurriel and uh, and uh, Chase McCormick uh, for the for the Astro Astros to win. Uh, just a wonderful series. Again, it's going to be one of these series that's going to come down to pitching and who can get their offense out ahead of these great great pitchers that are going to come at you night after night. So very good stuff. I love playoff baseball, Brock. It's it's worth it to sort of skim through the 162 during the year, and then you get this awesome playoff baseball. I just, I can't get enough of it. But the reason why I didn't get enough of the night game is because I was watching a little bit of the Toronto Raptors and the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Raptors winning their home opener last night. Two observations for you, Brock. Number one, what we talked about yesterday, the speed with which the Raptors can play was very noticeable last night. A great tempo to that game all through out. My second observation is I hate that both teams were wearing dark jerseys. It was really hard for my <laughs> legally blind eyes to totally differentiate what was happening on the court with the Raptors in their red jerseys, their dark red jerseys, and the Cavaliers in a black jersey. Or was it vice versa? I, uh, Whatever it was. No, the Raptors were in their dark uh, red and, and Cavaliers in black. And I put up my hand as you were talking just to signify, yeah, I was right there with you there were a couple of concerns but a couple of good things i saw from the toronto raptors um first of all they they got to the free throw line a ton but only shot in and around 60 percent that's got to be better if you're going to compete in this eastern conference this eastern conference is riddled with talent up and down the eastern conference you are not going to get away with being able to rely on fred van vliet and company to bail you out night after night 
you got to do this. I'm really glad to see they dug themselves out of, uh, you know, a situation where they were up 11 and then down six a couple of times, down eight, down nine. They pulled themselves out, but you need to sustain it all through the game. I, I've got to shout out uh, Cleveland Cavaliers' Devin Mitchell. What an outstanding game from mm-hmm. him. Uh, 31 points. He was every time he was on the feet, on the on the on the floor, he made a difference. You know, he it was like, oh yeah, Devin Mitchell's on the court, something's gonna change. The Raptors did take advantage of of you know him being off the floor, but just the free throws have got to be better if you're gonna be mm-hmm. a top tier uh, team as you hope to be. And I don't mean to you know rain on the Toronto Raptors in their home opener, but. The truth is that there is some stuff that I looked last night and went, we got to do no, better with this. That, that's a very fair observation. Things like free throws are the little things in execution that mean the difference between wins and losses. That's well-observed, Brock. Brock, just before we say goodbye to you, let's hear from Eliza Rocco, who was at the game last night, her first ever basketball game, her first ever Raptors game. Eliza, how was the experience? Oh, it was the best. It was so much fun. And when you go to a sports game, the only thing you can hope for is an entertaining, fast-paced game. There's nothing worse than a game where one team is just a complete <laughs> blowout. And it was very entertaining. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. And I got free swag. I got myself a nice T-shirt, uh, a bag of chips. And I watched that game. I could not take my eyes off it the whole time. But uh, they did... Thankfully, win. I have not been to a lot of winning sports games recently, so it felt really, really great to win that That's one. definitely part of the fun. Eliza, thank you for the review. We appreciate it. And Brock, thank you for your thoughts today. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. We will indeed. We're going to have some fun tomorrow. That's right. You've already sent me, but we're not going to tell people just yet, but you've already sent me the big question, so it's already rolling around my brain. Brock, have a great day. <laughs> You too. Have a good one. That is Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. It's cloudy with showers this morning and up to 10 millimeters expected with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 18. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's rain in the morning then clearing up in the afternoon with up to four millimeters expected and 14 is the high over to st john new brunswick it's sunny and a high of 13. in quebec city quebec it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers and eight is the high in toronto ontario it's mainly cloudy with possible flurries early this morning and showers later in the morning. No. And wind gusts. Yeah, I know, Dave. It was the first time uh, this year we got uh, uh, we we got uh, possible flurries in Toronto. So it's uh, winter is just around the corner. Fall uh. is certainly here. Yeah, I I hate to break it to you. I'm just I'm just reporting the That's the, true. the weather. True. I'm not making it. So <laughs> uh, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour in the high of only eight in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Flurries this morning and then cloudy and possible rain in the afternoon. There's two centimeters expected up there with a high of seven. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 19. In Regina, Saskatchewan, clouds clearing up as the day goes on with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 17. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour a high of 22. Red Deer, Alberta. 
It's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers and it's also hazy and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 14. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 8. Kelowna, BC. It's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain this morning, but also hazy and an air quality statement is in effect due to the smoke and haze in the area. 13 is the high. Finally, over to Vancouver, BC, there's widespread smoke from the wildfires. They also have an air quality statement in effect and 15 is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you again in a couple of minutes. But coming up next, Apple has unveiled a new slate of iPads. Sean Priest will walk through a couple of those features. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Apple is showing off their new generation of iPads. So let's talk about them with Sean Priest of Double Tap. We find Sean in his shed in Manchester, England. Hello, Sean. Hello, Dave. I've missed you. How are you doing? <laughs> I always miss you too. I always, I'm always happy when I find out <laughs> Sean's going to be the Thursday Double Tap contributor. Shh, don't tell Stephen. Don't tell Steve because right, no, he's, okay. he's a nice guy too. But I always look forward to my chats with Sean. <laughs> uh, Sean, before we get into Apple's new iPads, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, beyond the bells and the whistles, where do Uh-oh. tablets fit into your overall device usage? Oh, now, oh, Dave, that's such a good question because I'll be honest with you, it was a bit underwhelming, this drop of new tech. And when it comes to tablets, I just mm, – if you would have asked me, say, four years ago, then it was purely for content consumption, mm-hmm, right? Netflix mm-hmm. all the way, or YouTube, whatever it may be, even browsing the web. I had the last iPad I had was the iPad 3. And yeah, it was a coffee table browsing, you know, whatever. Really good. But since my vision's gone down and down, honestly, I, I can't find a use case for. A tablet, no matter what the tablet is, mm-hmm. be it an iPad, be it a, a Fire tablet, um, because I just do everything on my phone. What, yeah. what is a bigger yeah. screen bringing someone who with less vision? What is it bringing me? If you're low vision, I totally get it. If you've got not enough really usable vision to that the big screen makes a difference, I struggle to find a use case for the tablet. I'll be honest. Yeah, I find other than streaming content, I really don't use my tablet very often at all. I mean, but it is great for streaming some content, like watching sports in bed. Perfect. That's where I do. That's where I do my best watching in bed, falling asleep with sports on. So I, I, I definitely see like little places where it becomes useful. Or if you just kind of want to yeah. show, if you sort of want to have something on in the background, it's sort of a great background device. It's great to sort of portably bring around. It's a little easier than say a laptop. But I, I also find that they don't really, it doesn't really make its way as a key piece of my tech. It's either to my phone or my computer. That's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, Now, now in this case, Apple is touting a sleeker design and more power. Do either of these features move the needle for you? That was so impressive. (laughs) Um, uh, I've got to say, okay, so they released the entry level, uh, the 10th gen iPad, which is the entry level, the affordable in air quotes, <laughs> affordable, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. The entry level, <clears throat> excuse me, iPad, and also a new iPad Pro. So the entry level actually has uh, the new design. 
It's got rid of the home button. Some people are going to hate that, but I actually think it's a good thing. Um, you know, it's it's uh, basically they've redesigned it that it fits in with the rest of the iPad lineup. Uh, because my partner's just recently bought the older, the <laughs> last week, the uh, <laughs> the last gen <laughs> good entry timing. level. Very iPad. good timing on that. I told her not to. I said no, she wouldn't listen. Um, <laughs> Doesn't she know she's married to a tech guy? You know, like... <laughs> I know. Yeah. she hates all that. She tells me no, anyway. Um, yeah, so she bought the older one uh, with the home button, and it just feels dated. It, it does feel like you know it's it's older tech. Uh, so the the new entry level one, it, it's dropped the lightning port uh, for a USB C, which is nice. That's good. Uh, as has yeah. the iPad Pro, um, uh, but more it's it's more about the design, I think. Also, they they put the camera in the landscape position, so. Instead of where it usually is at the top of the iPad in portrait, they've moved it to hmm. the side, the right-hand side in landscape mode. Actually makes a lot of sense. But still, on the iPad Pro, it's still in the top in portrait, which is slightly strange. But there's a few decisions that Apple makes, which makes you think, why? But <laughs> hey, I, I actually think the iPad, <clears throat> excuse me again, the, the entry-level iPad is um, a, a good upgrade. Um, you know, it's got a spec bump with the A14 processor. It's got this brand new design, which brings it in line with the others, uh, with the other iPads, with the other Apple kit, if you like. So I can see this being a big seller. And when it comes to the iPad Pro, however, um, starts with 11 inch or 12.9 inch. It's a big old thing. And it has the M2 processor. That's the big feature. Right. The right. iPad Pro is the new M2 chip the apple silicon i mean this is stuff that you're finding in the, the laptops right so totally amazing when it comes to power but still it's stuffed in a tablet and going on to our your first question there I mean, why right uh, right uh, uh, what are you going to use all this power for so that is a bit of a harder sell for me that's right what's what's the use case for all that power because i'm sure there are some designers out there who say oh yeah, yeah i design all kinds of stuff using the ipad using some of the accessories so maybe there's something there but again that's playing to yeah. a very very niche crowd in terms of trying to market your product sean yeah. you sent me some of the marketing material and as a good journalist i dove into it with a certain level of enthusiasm and one of the things that they did mention in some of the promotional material is a rethinking of their magic keyboard to be a more simple connectivity, bigger keys, a little trackpad. What's your impression of having some, something that has a little bit more keyboard freedom that almost looks a little bit what the Microsoft was doing with the Surface that we talked about last week? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is all great stuff, right? Full-size keyboard. Uh, it's just a better um, – better feel for typing, touchpad, all oh, absolutely fantastic. This is only available for the iPad. I mean, I mean it's, it, it, this bothers me. This should be a cross if you get an iPad Pro or the iPad Mini. I, I don't know what it is. This keyboard is specifically for the entry-level iPad. Yeah, I, I, this particular I, device, this singular device. This singular, exactly right. Sorry, yeah. And, and for me... Yeah, great. This, I'm not saying this is a bad keyboard at all. It's a folio keyboard, so it attaches uh, like a case to your iPad, and the, the keys are full-size keys, and it's got a touchpad. Lovely. Absolutely delicious. Only for the entry-level iPad. Where is it for the uh, iPad Pro? Uh, that's still using the previous-gen Magic Keyboard folio. Uh, I, again, I just don't understand 
the thinking behind this. And of course, let's not get away from the $329 price tag Woo! for a keyboard. <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. That's almost the iPad cost itself. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, not for me. Sean, I'm getting the impression that you aren't all that <laughs> impressed, whether it be this keyboard or the or the, or the little touch magic pen they're touting or the overall mm-hmm. product. I, I get the impression you're not super impressed. Um, I'm not. But then, as I said, look, to, to be fair, I think the iPad, entry-level iPad, is you know, a, a great device. It's going to sell well. Um, the Pro, I'm not too sure about. But um, it's just I, 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 can't, I can't get excited over tablets too much because for me, it's just a, a smartphone with a bigger screen. And when it comes to the iPad entry level as well, it only works with the first gen Apple Pen, uh, Apple Pencil, maybe I should call it. I, can't I, remember. I, I, I don't even know what they've branded. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's, 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 a, it's a pen. <laughs> it's a pen. But either way, that Apple Pen is charged by lightning and they've got rid of that. So there's a nine pound dongle, sorry, a $9 dongle <laughs> you need to buy to charge the well, it's just, it's it's crazy to me. Um, but look, as you said, look, the iPad Pro, maybe there's a target audience for that. Architects, artists, uh, video editors, photo, I don't know. But um, it's it's definitely, uh, it's it's a slightly underwhelming tech drop Yeah, with this one. There's yeah. some spec bumps. But if you like your tablets, the new entry-level iPad is actually quite nice. So let's say someone does want to take the plunge. How is their bank account going to be feeling after they make the purchase? <laughs> Sadly, the entry-level iPad from uh, the new 10th gen has gone up $150 from the previous gen, the which is still available, by the way. Inflation comes for us all. Uh, yes, of course. But if you do like the home button, you can still buy the 9th gen entry-level iPad. Uh, it's coming in, at, I believe, it starts at, oh, I, I'm desperately thinking, uh, I believe it's 479 uh, Canadian. Okay, okay. Uh, that's the starting starting price. I, I'll, yeah, please uh, you know check what, that. You know, you know what, Sean? Don't worry about it. The fact is, people know they're gonna they're gonna have to shed so they're gonna have to shed some cash. If it's one hundred and fifty dollars more than it used to be. Than it used to be. Okay, fair enough. I know. believe the iP- the iPad Pro starts at around ten nine nine Canadian. Okay, all right. So some dollars are going to be dropped there. Hey, Sean. Maybe the next time I talk to you, there'll be another new prime minister in England. Yeah, I'm going for the job. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you can only do it for a month, that sounds great to me. I'll have a go. Yeah, just every let, that's a great idea. Everybody gets <laughs> one month on the job to see if they can fix the economy. Why not? Uh, what's what's the worst that can happen? Sean, thank you for this. We always appreciate catching up. Thanks a lot, mate. See you later on. That's Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can catch daily on AMI Audio at noon. And of course, you can also catch Sean's podcast, Sean of the Shed which is incredible as well. I always like catching up with Sean. Speaking of excellent AMI-audio programming this Thursday, that's today at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, the host of The Pulse, Joy Gupta, will speak with Tim Martin at York University about the way documentaries cover homelessness and mental illness. Always an interesting conversation on The Pulse Thursdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, or you can also find the show in podcast form, and you can also catch it on YouTube. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya and with the news. In studio with me right now, we'll link up with Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Alex Smythe as well. I'm going to ask them a time travel, would you rather question. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in the host of, Ke- well, the co-host of Kelly and Company, Ramya Amuthan. We'll bring in Nizreen Abdel-Majid, incredible producer and content creator at AMI-audio, and Alex Smythe, the co-host of this show, to have a little bit of a roundtable chat. So good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, in studio, the yeah. real deal with Ramya. And, of course, we have Nizreen joining us from out there in southern Ontario. Good morning, Nizreen. Hi. And Alex Smythe is joining us as well. Hey, good morning, Alex. Good morning, Dave. All right. So I was bothering some people at the bar last night with this question. If Andy Frank is listening, he's going to be very upset that I'm continuing to talk about this. But it's a time travel would you rather question. So I'm going to set this up in very simple terms. Would you rather be a modern day working class American with no health insurance or royalty in the 13th century. And by the way, you can be royal wherever you want. You could be in the Ottoman Empire. You can be in the Persian Empire. You can go to the Tamil Kings. You can be the Ming Dynasty. Or you can be Charlemagne. You can be the head of the Holy Roman Empire. It's up to you. You can be royalty in whatever way, shape, or form and wherever you like in the world. See, I'm very inclusive like that. Mm-hmm. Even if we want to be Aztecs over there in North America, we can do that too. So, Rumia, would you rather be royalty in the 13th century or a working class person without health insurance today? Uh, okay, I mean, I don't know why I had to go first here, Dave, but the, the <laughs> Tamil kings and queens just did not really live well back then either. So it feels like a bit of a um, neither answer for me. Okay. But, but <laughs> None of the above. I, know, I just don't want to above. exist. I don't, I don't like it. Um, but, okay, okay. The reason why I would probably pick 13th century royalty is because uh, you still, you had to be respected. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, it's probably mm-hmm. a lot similar to today. But anyway, it's like you had to be um, given all the goods and you got all the, the the nice bougie luxuries and all that stuff. So even if you do get killed and life expectancy wasn't so great and um, there were a lot of haters out there and it still felt like there was a lot of issues and challenges, oh, yeah. at least with the historical dramas that I was part of you know, <laughs> growing up, um, <laughs> that today's is like reality as we live it, right? We know what to expect if mm-hmm. you're a working class citizen with no health care. And that seems really terrible. The possibility of being beheaded at any time or like yeah. dying of catching a fever and dehydration 100%. seems like not awesome, like not incredible. But there is a lot of power. And even though we don't think of luxuries in the 13th century the same way we'd think about luxuries today, remember, you're the queen. You're the king. Exactly. You're getting the finest pelts. You're getting all the massages. You're getting the bathhouses drawn for you. Someone's tasting my soap for me. Someone's tasting – like there's everything going on for you. So even though it would be um, maybe a little less comfortable than today – you're still getting like the top tier comfort. So in in a sense, I kind of lean 13th century. Nazreen, what about you? I would have to agree with Ramya. I was going for the more of the respect, the power that you get. I mean, it's not great, but it's it has to be better than living in America. <laughs> A cop <cough, cough. laughs> out altogether. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it has to be better than living in America as a Middle Eastern person, probably. I would narrow that down more. Mm-hmm. Fair. Uh, especially and I have friends that don't have like healthcare insurance and they're struggling so much in America. And so that just doesn't sound fun. So I I don't know if, if I had to pick, I would say royalty because that just, 
maybe sounds a little bit better. Yeah, not to be uh, not to be too mean to our American friends, but in the same way you could be beheaded as royalty in the 13th century, you can get shot at the grocery store. Right, you, live in an you America. never know. And Nazreen is right to identify that probably being a, a Muslim woman living in America mm-hmm. without health care doesn't sound too, too ideal. That's where my white privilege definitely comes in because you can plot me in a red state and they'd be like, oh, that guy's super white. He's fine. Um, <laughs> let's jump over to Alex Smythe. Alex, uh, where do you stand on this time travel would you rather uh, yeah, you know, in the past, I used to think like, oh, yeah, I'd love to go back and time travel uh, back to, you know, the Middle Ages, 13th century, you know, uh, 11th century. Oh, it'd be so cool. And then you start to think about it a bit more. You dissect kind of what it would mean to be back there. And uh, the more I think about it, the more it's like I, I like modern comforts. I like, you know, not having to worry about if I get sick if i'm gonna die from diarrhea dehydration if a, a common cold's gonna gonna kind of kill me or as you say you're getting decapitated for whatever reason whereas modern life in in the u.s you know it's it's not perfect there's a lot of issues especially when you're uh living a working class lifestyle without health insurance but you still have access to modern comforts like the internet you have mm-hmm, access you mm-hmm. can still you can still move around. You, if you really needed to, if you were struggling with healthcare costs, you can leave the states to go elsewhere. You know, you could apply to uh, immigrate into Canada, where we have you know subsidized healthcare, things like that. So I, I, I would bend that question a bit, be like, well, definitely, I want to take the the modern um, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, working class lifestyle because at the end of the day, you know. Yes, sir. There's a number of issues, but I, I really don't need to worry about someone, you know, raiding my village and, and decapitating me. Because especially if you're at the royal level, you're typically the biggest target yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for somebody. Whereas working class, no one's unfortunately, not a lot of people are really focused in on you. You never know when a Viking is just going to come by. A little Viking canoe is going to sail through. But maybe that's why uh, being being down there in, uh, in in South Asia might be better. It's a little warmer, less Vikings in South Asia. But there's other trouble too. You know, it's, there's, there's stuff coming for you. Uh, Ramya had asked me during the commercial break, "Why did you pick the 13th century?" And I told you I didn't really have a reason as to why I picked the 13th century. But as I think it through a little bit, the 13th century is kind of an important one because we think about things like entertainment, right? One of the modern conveniences we have with the internet is entertainment. Entertainment. In the 13th century, we hadn't even gotten into like Renaissance music yet. Mm. Like we were talking about like singular instruments with one string on them, certainly in Western Europe. So I I, I do think that maybe there's uh, something to pick in that date as well, because maybe in like the 15 or 1600s, it's like, oh, yeah, give me a little Stravinsky. Give me like a little Bach. Let's like have a little fun here. But uh, but yeah, I, Rivaldi, you know, we get some of that good stuff. That stuff's not even there in the 13th century yet. It's just it's just a dude wearing tights dancing for you. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, Alex, like your take on taking our our current selves and actually going back to the 13th century as we are today. I mean, disability. Like, would I be protected just because I'm royalty? I don't know. Like, it's a real scary situation out there. Uh, at that time, if you had any visible disabilities at all, accessibility in the 1200s not 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 a huge not a huge no. thing. People weren't really thinking about that. That's a Ramya. That's such a good point. I think we can leave the conversation there. Nazreen, thank you for your thoughts on this one. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for your thoughts as well.
Thank you. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up in this studio for yes. Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time? All right. We're talking to Fern Lullum, of course, our friend from the U.K., and she's discussing a major U.K. advertising campaign aimed at changing public perception of blind and partially sighted individuals. She's saying that they're doing a really good job. We'll find out why. The 35th Toronto International Snowmobile, ATV, and Power Sports show is back. <laughs> I know, it's a thing. Who booked that, Jeff Ryman? <laughs> <laughs> Our good friend Colleen McCourt, always hooking us up. So this is the largest uh, show of its kind in the world. You can imagine that. And it takes place this weekend at the International Centre in Mississauga, Ontario. So we're going to learn more about it with this, one of the stars of the event, multi-time Canadian championship winning motocross racer, Blair Morgan. Oh, I thought you were going to interview the ATV. Just... <laughs> vroom, vroom, vroom. Hello, she ATV. if you want to come check are, it out. ATV, how are you feeling going into this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> That's an option for next time, David. Yeah, it's sometimes you get a little creative in, yeah, in yeah. the industry. Uh-huh. And then uh, one last thing, we have Curious Minds with Christine Malik, and she's going to talk because we're talking a lot more about the James Webb Telescope and mm. the accessible sonifications and making the images um I guess, accessible for people mm. with low vision. So we're going to talk more about that. Very, very cool. Rami, I've, I have many ideas of what I would do uh, in a different broadcasting life. And yeah. one of them spawned from very early in my career. There was a truck that spilled over that was carrying a bunch of bees. Oh and if I'd been a little bit more intrepid as a host and producer at the time, I would have isolated the sound of bees buzzing and then I would have interviewed the bees and been like, hello, bees, what's, this, what's the thing on the scene? Bzz, bzz. No, no, one at a time. I wanted a time so I could understand you. Bzz, bzz. And then the joke ends there. And that's why right. radio, that's why, that's why DJ radio bits are more fun than talk radio bits because you can just throw to the next song. Yeah. You can get the true. joke out and get out. It's like 30 second hits. Exactly. Yeah. Ramya, thank you for this. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> that's Ramya and the co-host of Kelly and Company coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI Audio. Coming up next, an organization is trying to make disc golf or frisbee golf more accessible and inclusive. Sylvie Fiquette will have that story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's head out to the West Coast to catch up with AMI content development specialist, Sylvie Fiquette. Hey, good morning, Sylvie. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to chat with you as always. So, Sylvie, let's start in Victoria, where a startup is aiming to make disc golf or frisbee golf more accessible. Uh, The sport has become quite popular. I've actually played a few times very, very poorly. How is it supposed to be played? Well, that was my question, Dave, whether you have tried Frisbee golf, because I've seen it, but I have not. And uh, it, it looks a bit challenging. So the game is played in parks and fields with the disc golfer tossing a brightly colored disc quite far, usually having to snake around trees or through long grass en route to a target. And the disc golfer usually feels they know exactly where their disc has landed until reaching the spot to find (laughs) that Frisbee's a goner. (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, no doubt that I've lost a couple of uh, Frisbees along the way in my playing very, very poorly. And part of it is, yeah, where'd that thing go? It went into a bush and now I don't know where it is. So, So there's an innovation here. Who's behind the innovation who's trying to perhaps mitigate that? 
Yeah, this is great. UVic alumni uh, Simon Park and Eve Olnick are co-founders of the Victoria startup, get this, Meep Meep, which has <laughs> <laughs> very Looney Tunes, which has received plenty of interest with its stick-on disc golf tracker. Olnick grew up playing golf, disc golf with her family on Salt Spring Island. She really loved how approachable and low cost the activity is. And she assumed some sort of tracker existed, but not finding any, she pitched the the idea to the University of Victoria's Innovation Centre, where she was introduced to Matt uh, Park, her uh, co-founder. Co He's a mechanical engineer. And two and a half years later, they're a long way from duct taping a prototype to discs. <laughs> and <laughs> they've seen their product take flight uh, with players across North America. Oh, Sylvie, what a pun there. That's well done. So <laughs> I think I get a sense here, but how does the technology work? How does Meet Meep work? Yeah. So Meep Meep's locators stick to the Frisbees with an adhesive ring that allows users to easily remove and transfer them onto another disc in their arsenal. When the disc disappears after settling in the grass or takes a wayward bounce off a tree, players open their Camosun College developed Meep Meep app and press a button their tracker starts chirping to give off the location. So the founders are wanting to help the growth of disc golf, bringing the game to a wider community, hoping their noise-making tracker and accessible app will open the sport to those who are blind and partially sighted. So that's the magic word right there, because although this may not have been necessarily designed for people strictly who are blind or low vision, there is an accessibility component to this. So what have the founders said about accessibility? Yeah, so they're, um, with you, Vic, they um, have a, a tech area, CARSA, that uh, actually it's not CARSA, it's CanAssist that develops a lot of accessible technology. And they've been working on all sorts of gadgets uh, for several years now. And so it's not surprising to me that it was almost second nature for them to think, okay, we need to do something accessible with a, a sound, a chirping sound. So that's um, that's where they went with this. And um, it does bring a lot more player, the game to a lot more players. Meep Meep um, sees its product as a way to end the days of lost discs and speed up the game, especially for kids and newcomers who may not have their shots nailed down. Um, it's it's definitely low cost, and uh, and mm -hmm. with this accessibility accessibility feature, it's going to become quite popular. Yeah, where I used to play in the Ottawa area, it was actually a ski hill that in the summer times would offer a free disc golf course. So just I'd go up there with a buddy, bring a couple bring a couple beers, bring a couple discs, and that was it. You just start playing, and it was it was so low cost. It was a great way to stay a bit active. And let me let me just say, climbing up and down a ski hill all day, uh, you feel pretty tired at the end. You get a workout in there too. So it's good stuff. And Sylvie, this, this is a million dollar idea. If they can figure out how to put one of these onto a golf ball, then we'd really be getting somewhere that would improve my golf game. Well, it wouldn't improve my golf game, but it would mean that I don't need a million spotters with me every time I play. Uh, Sylvie, let's <laughs> jump over to the CNIB, some events and services getting back to in-person action in this fall. So what's happening for families? 
Yes, CNIB is hosting BC Family Fun Days between October 22nd to November November 19th in three different communities across the region. Family Fun Days are filled with lots of fall-themed fun, offering games, lunch, prizes and activities to connect with other families in your region. So these exciting events will be providing opportunities for families to be introduced to services and learning from the CNIB and organizations which provide services to blind and partially sighted youth in BC. Mm. Uh, Where are the events happening and how can somebody register? Yeah, so dates and locations for this are in Victoria on Saturday, October 22nd, between 11 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at the Fernwood Community Centre, in Surrey on Saturday, October 29th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Semiamu Arts Society, and then in Kelowna on Saturday, November 19th. Family Fun Day happens from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Rotary Centre for the Arts. For registration, Uh, You can contact the Program Coordinator for Children and Youth at 604-644-6536, 604-644-6536, or um, you can visit cnib.ca forward slash events and fill on the online Family Fun Day registration form there. Sylvia, I've got to rush you through this one. We've only got about 45 seconds, but there's also some assistive technology in-person training. I think we understand what that is, but where can folks learn more about that? Yes, very quick. The uh, Tri-Cities Assistive Technology Primer offered by the CNIB takes place in person on Tuesday, November 1st, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you'd like information, you must register. Please contact Julia Bonnet at cnib.ca. That's julia.b-o-n-n-e-t-t at cnib.ca or call 1-800-563-2642. Sylvie, we're so grateful for these stories that you bring to us today. I know there's some air quality issues in Vancouver right now with some of the drought and the forest fires. Hope everybody's okay and safe on your end. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that, Dave. Fingers crossed the rain sets in tomorrow, Mm -hmm. so should clear that out. Thanks a lot. That's good. Sylvie, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Sylvie Fiquette, a content development specialist for AMI out there in British Columbia. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We'll have the news panel with Joita and maybe Michelle. We'll see. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.